0: Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Winter is over, at long last. But there's no end in sight to the great divide in American politics. Left versus right, Democrat versus Republican. There seems to be no common ground, nor very much mutual respect either. So what's behind this huge and bitter gap? Ted Koppel will report our cover story.
1: The media outlets, which one was the worst? CBS! Which one? CBS!
2: Television host Sean Hannity is a passionate conservative, an early and devoted supporter of Donald Trump, and a regular viewer of CBS Sunday Morning. I watch this show every Sunday. I'm not watching this week when this is on. Go ahead. Find out why as we examine America's Great Divide ahead on Sunday Morning.
0: Danny DeVito is already a star of film and TV many times over. Now it's curtain up on his latest and very different act. Martha Teichner will be taking us backstage.
3: <laughs> because you see, the main thing today is shopping.
0: Danny DeVito
4: has just made his Broadway debut.
5: <clears throat> and I go right
4: in here. Oh, that's and. A title. He has a secret in I, I his dressing it. room. It's twenty-two bucks yeah. course. later this Sunday morning, Danny DeVito, right. with a
5: spring in his step do, at seventy-two, do, uh, Solomon uh, does it like in costume. And
4: this gets you going.
0: The rock stars we'll admire this morning will never be seen performing on any stage, but as Tracy Smith will show us, they're a sight to behold, nonetheless.
6: This crystal is 7,000 pounds.
0: Richard Berger started
7: collecting crystals in 1968 and never really stopped. But are there times, Miriam, where you have to say to Richard, enough is enough?
6: Oh, I've tried. (laughs) I don't think I'm very effective at
8: that.
7: (laughs) Now he's amassed one of the biggest collections on the planet.
0: We'll have a look ahead this Sunday morning. Can you believe it? Wonder Woman is celebrating her diamond anniversary. And with Faith Saley this morning, so are we. She may not look it, but Wonder
8: Woman just turned 75. Just don't tell that to TV's Linda Carter. The character is 75 years old. Someone said, are you really 75? I went. <laughs> From the comics to that costume, the super life of Wonder Woman later on Sunday morning.
0: Mo Rocca is hung up on the telephone booth. You remember those. Ben Tracy shows us the paintings of John McLaughlin on view at long last. Jim Axelrod salutes CBS sports legend Vern Lundquist's half century of calling the shots and more.
9: He's a neo-Nazi.
0: Next, confronting America the Great Divide.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: As this past week's battle over health care reminds us, The great divide in American politics shows no sign of closing, or even quieting down. Our cover story is reported by Sunday Morning Senior Contributor, Ted Koppel.
2: Increasingly, we Americans occupy alternate universes.
6: To be honest, I inherited a mess, it's a mess.
10: No, you inherited a fortune, we elected a mess.
2: There is very little common ground left, only battling perceptions of reality.
1: Are you all all happy with the last 30 days?
2: Neither side seems to have much use for the other, and in this age of the Internet and cable TV, very little is out of
10: bounds. Donald Trump, America's wealthiest hemorrhoid. Democrats want to dissolve the borders. Isn't that what they want, open borders? Isn't that what the snake Obama did? There are legions driving the country
2: further and further apart.
11: President Trump has still done more for this country in the last 40 days than Barack Obama did in eight years.
2: A Pew study finds 81% of voters say they cannot agree with the other side on basic facts, which may owe something to the president's campaign against fake news
1: the Media outlets, which one was the worst?
6: DNA!
12: Which one? DNA! DNA, the most trusted name in news.
6: Just because of the attack of fake news and, and attacking our network, I, I just want to ask you, sir. I'm changing it from fake yeah. news, though. D- doesn't that under very fake news? Yeah. I know, but aren't you? <laughs>
2: yeah. There's nothing new about simmering hostility between a president and the press. The president should treat the press just as fairly as the press treats him. In March of 1974, the Nixon presidency was lurching toward destruction by Watergate, and there was an ongoing tension between the president and the CBS White House correspondent. Thank you, Mr. President. Dan Rather with CBS News.
1: (laughs) President, President. Are you running for something? (laughs) No sir, Mr. President, are you? Uh... Norm
2: Ornstein, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, was then, and remains now, a student of our political system and our media
1: we would watch network news shows. And we would sit there and we would have uh, basically a common set of facts that would emerge from them. As we've moved to the new media world, the more we've got this cacophony of voices, the more you cut through it by basically shock value. And that's why people now are driven not by their own attachment to their own parties, they're driven by a hatred for those on the other side. Democrats, the alt-left propaganda destroy Trump media, continue to ignore facts and what has clearly now become a political witch hunt. Is
2: Sean Hannity's television program on Fox has a nightly audience of 2.9 million viewers. He has from the first promoted Donald Trump, Trump and a highly partisan agenda. Honestly,
1: I think liberalism has to be defeated. Socialism must be defeated in a political sense. This is not a. We we don't want a revolution in this country. What more do you want? You
2: got the White House. You got the House. You got the Senate. Okay.
1: And then we have angry snowflakes. And then we've got a Democratic establishment. I say the press in this country is out to destroy this president. Well, the president's real troubles, again today, were not with the media, but with the facts.
10: It's absolutely crazy. He keeps repeating ridiculous
1: throwaway lines that are not true at all. I think the president is somewhat indifferent to things that are true or false. He has spent his whole life bullshitting. He has succeeded by bullshitting.
13: They, they live in two separate worlds, and they don't understand Trump's.
2: Rush Limbaugh had a lot to do with creating those two separate worlds, but he couldn't have done it until 1987, when the Federal Communications Commission did away with the so-called Fairness Doctrine, which was what? The
1: Fairness Doctrine basically said that people on radio and television, if they presented one political point of view, had to balance it with... The opposite political point of view
10: welcome to the rush limbaugh program a program exclusively designed for rich conservatives and right-minded republicans and those who want to be either or both
2: free of the fairness doctrine rush limbaugh and conservative conservative talk radio exploded into a political force of nature
1: now you take conservative talk radio move that forward to tribal cable television and then layer onto that email and social media And all of a sudden, we live in a world where people can get information and believe it's absolutely true and not have to get any kind of opposing point of view. And once they believe it, they will always believe it, even if it's utterly false. We have to give some credit to the American people that they're somewhat intelligent and that they know the difference between an opinion show and a news show. Yeah. You're cynical. Look at that. I am cynical because, uh, you know... You think we're bad for America? You think I'm bad for America? Yeah.
2: You do in the in the long haul. I think you really? and all these opinion shows. That's sad, Ted. No, you know why? That's
1: sad because you're
2: very good at what you do, and because you have you have attracted a significantly you more are influential. Oh, let, me the, let me finish the sentence. Let me finish the sentence before you do that. With all due respect, you, yes, you have floor. you have attracted people who are determined that ideology is more important than facts. It is, says White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, a media landscape that his boss, President Trump, well understands.
3: He doesn't conform to Washington norms or political standards about saying the right thing all the time or conforming to this. He understands that he has a direct voice to the American people. He's got over a hundred million plus people that follow him on different social media channels when you combine Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You've
2: heard the line that was in the Atlantic, uh, you know, the press takes him literally but not seriously, his followers take him seriously, but not literally. Are we really at a point where we are being told we shouldn't Take the president of the United States literally? No, he, I think
3: you should take him literally. The president's very authoritarian, authoritarian when he speaks. Um, he wants to be taken literally. You know, and also you have to understand that when you have 140 characters, um, that somebody trying to look at that and say this means the following uh, is a, is a little bit too much. And so that's
2: one good reason for not using. Well, no, Twitter, but I, I, but I uh, to, uh, no, it's to it's to not because I think that.
3: Issues. But but I think a lot of times folks in the media feel threatened by the fact that he has a direct pipeline to the American people. You want to grab him by the...
2: Last fall, after the release of the infamous Access Hollywood tape, the New York Times quoted Donald Trump in full, spelling out his obscenities on its front page, seemingly heedless of the paper's slogan, all the news that's fit to print. Dean Bacay, the paper's executive editor, calls it a clear decision. It wasn't even much of a debate, surprisingly. If you just put F, asterisk, 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 that wouldn't have done it? That feels coy. I
14: think that there was something about the sentences themselves, the force of it, to have the video with him saying it, And then to have F dot dot K just felt like coy.
2: If I were a Donald Trump supporter, I'd be seething every day. I'd see these guys are out to do him in, and one way or another, it's going to be us or them.
14: Yeah. I think my job is to ask hard questions about the largest revolution in government we've seen in my lifetime as a journalist. Not to attack them, but to ask really hard questions about them. And also to ask hard questions of a completely new cast of government officials who we know very little about. I think if we don't do that, meaning the press, I don't think anybody else will.
2: Is there any way that the extraordinarily influential New York Times Mm -hmm. can help to close the gap, heal the rift?
14: I don't think it's my job to heal America. I don't think that's part of the life of journalism. Some of what's happening in the country is healthy. There is an ability now for people to talk to each other. We're all focused on the people who say nasty things to each other and who say nasty things out loud, but that's not all that's going on. Call me a naive southerner, but you can't convince me that this is not a more open, wide world and that as much as it sort of throws us off our game a little bit, meaning the press, maybe we needed to have ourselves thrown off our game a little bit, you know?
2: It needs to be said that our bitter political divide didn't begin in the age of Trump, but it has evolved. Last spring in June of 2016, a Pew study discovered that 49 percent of Republicans and 55 percent of Democrats say they are afraid, yes, afraid of the other party. As President Trump might say, sad.
0: Ahead, stock. page from our Sunday morning almanac, March 26, 2011. Six years ago today, the day Harry Coover died at the age of 94. An Eastman Kodak chemist during World War II, Coover was trying to perfect a clear plastic gun sight for the military. But during experiments with a substance known as cyanoacrylate, Coover encountered a problem as he recalled years later in this video from the National Science and Technology Awards Foundation.
2: Everything was sticking to everything. Finally, the government canceled the contract.
0: Over time, however, Coover came to realize the value of an all-sticking adhesive. And the result was Eastman 910, a product eventually rebranded as superglue which Coover demonstrated for host Gary Moore on TV's I've Got a Secret.
2: Dr. Coover's secret is that the only thing between my 150 pounds and that wire will be one drop of glue.
0: Not that Super glue's usefulness was confined to TV stunts and home repairs. As Coover explained, it had remarkable healing powers as well.
2: During the Vietnam War, one of the generals came to us and said, I want this for out in the battlefield. When the medics go out in the battlefield, a guy's got a big hole in his belly or someplace bleeding. And he takes this and just sprays it. And that instantaneously stops the bleeding.
0: In the years since, a slightly different form of that very same chemical has been developed to heal wounds and replace stitches in surgery. As for Harry Coover, He racked up more than 400 patents during his career.
9: For his invention of and he
0: received the National Medal of Technology and Innovation in 2010, making the case that when you stumble upon an unexpected discovery, just stick with it. Next, crystals that rock. Crystals like this amethyst geode are the rock stars of mineralogy and the obsession of a collector in Seattle. Tracy Smith shows us the goods. Seattle, Washington,
7: wears its natural beauty out in the open, but the views can be just as stunning indoors if you know where to look. In a neighborhood not far from the Space Needle, there's a warehouse that looks like Mother Nature's private museum. For security reasons, they won't allow us to show the exterior, because inside there are these. Giant crystals, some the size of a compact car. And perfect formations, brilliant white or clear as glacial ice. When I think of crystals, I think of those little dainty things that people wear around their necks.
6: This is not one of those.
7: (laughs) Collector Richard Berger found this one in Namibia.
6: This crystal is 7,000 pounds.
7: Berger has spent his adult life, and he says most of his money, chasing the biggest, most perfect specimens he could find. And he's especially proud of these. They're called concretions, great swirling masses of rock from Fontainebleau, France, formed into fantastical shapes when ancient hot springs suddenly cooled. So it's almost like liquid was suddenly frozen. It went from
6: water to
7: rock in minutes. And what might be more amazing is how Richard Berger's rocks have transformed him. In 1968, he was a Philadelphia medical student on a road trip across America when he happened to cross a tiny shack in Wyoming with crystals for sale.
6: I saw this little piece and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, right? And I was completely enchanted by it.
7: So enchanted, in fact, that he dropped out of medical school and basically roamed the earth buying the biggest and most startling things ever dug up. This is amazing because it looks like someone made this.
6: This is a photographic memory of life on planet Earth 52 million years ago.
7: It's actually the fossilized bottom of a tropical lake imprinted with ancient fish around a palm frond, dug up in what's now Wyoming. And this quartz crystal formation looks like it came straight off a Superman movie set. So this is from Krypton? This is from Krypton,
6: Krypton also known as Arkansas.
7: Some believe that just handling a crystal can have a healing effect, and they've long been symbols of power. Just look at the crowns used in British coronations.
15: The archbishop lifts the crown of St. Edward and holds it for a moment above the queen's head.
6: And what's on their head? Mostly diamonds, rubies, sapphire, emeralds, crystals that have been cut into a variety of shapes and made into a hat. Long live the queen.
7: He's never owned a crown, but by 1977, Richard Berger had collected enough crystals to open a store in his native New York City. Miriam Dyack and her girlfriend were customers one day in 1982.
8: He thought my friend was cute. He didn't really notice me. I no
6: attention to whatsoever. <laughs> I made up for it, though.
7: <laughs> Long story short, they married in 1985. And as their relationship grew, so did Richard's collection. But are there times, Miriam, where you have to say to Richard, enough is enough? Oh, I've
6: tried. (laughs) I don't think I'm very effective at that. I think that's an understatement.
7: (laughs) They've managed to make a living selling a piece here and there, but most of their money has gone back into this collection, which they say has now become too expensive for them to keep. I mean, yes, we need to sell it, because otherwise we'd have nothing.
6: This represents... A very very significant investment but that doesn't mean that we left enough for ourselves right to live that comfortably so you know we have our 15 year old car and we have no stock portfolio and we don't own a house and we live in a 315 square foot apartment and Uh, we have a
7: tiny house 315 square feet? Right. Yeah. The crystals get 6,000 square feet.
6: Right. And we are sitting on the greatest collection of giant crystals in the world.
7: They're hoping to sell it all to someone who will keep the collection intact and build a museum around it. Berger won't quote a price except to say it's in the multi-millions. They've had offers, but only for individual pieces, like the Wyoming lake bottom.
6: For instance, we had somebody who wanted to come in like... Six months ago, we wanted to put it in the lobby of a new Sheridan that we're building. And you said? I said no. With five cents in the bank, I said no to selling that, right? Because we're trying to hold the integrity of this collection together. We don't want to sell off iconic pieces. You know, at a certain point, if that becomes improbable to sustain, then you go, all right, enough of this. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet.
7: After all, they're not just rocks. To Berger, they're the foundation of a dream he wants to share with the world.
6: Is a way of inspiring people. Right? It's about inspiration. I think what the world needs right now, more than just about anything, is inspiration.
15: Look at
0: me. You're
5: intelligent beings.
0: Still to come, actor Danny DeVito. You want
5: to conquer the world, you're going to need lawyers, right?
0: But first, Wonder Woman, going like 75.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Wonder Woman, the comic book character, has reached a personal milestone Reason enough for the actress who played her on TV to talk with our Faith Saley. It
8: may be considered impolite to reveal a woman's age, but when it's this woman, turning 75 is a wonder. Born in 1941, Wonder Woman, along with her predecessors, Superman and Batman, are the only superheroes to be in continuous print since their debut. For many of us, though, it was TV's Linda Carter who brought Wonder Woman to life. For a lot of people, when they think of Wonder Woman, they think they see you. I know. <laughs> How does it feel? It's
11: bizarre.
0: It it is um, humbling. Honestly, uh, particularly after all this time. I don't really think that I'm Wonder Woman, by the way.
8: (laughs) Carter says she got the role back in 1975, largely because she looked the part, which was both a blessing and, as one of the show's producers warned her, a
7: curse.
0: It's like, oh, women are going to be so jealous of you. Well, I said, not a chance. They won't be, because I'm not playing her that way. I want women to want to be my be me or be my best friend.
8: And it turns out, providing a role model was exactly the point in creating Wonder Woman way back in 1941. You see, in the face of growing concern that comics were too violent for children, DC Comics publisher Max Gaines turned to noted psychologist and author William Marston for help.
11: And as the story goes, Marston says, what you need is a female superhero. She'll, she'll be essentially a pacifist. I mean, she'll fight for democracy, but she'll be fighting for equal rights for women. And her, her superpowers will be love and truth and
8: beauty. Harvard professor Jill Lepore is the author of The Secret History of Wonder Woman. And Gaines is like, yeah, well... Maybe, I guess we
11: could give that a shot. It's very skeptical. Um, And so that's always been Wonder Woman's origin story.
8: But perhaps the true inspiration behind Marston's fictional Wonder Woman were the real women in his life.
11: What was hidden from the historical record was the whole Marston family story and the women in his life that egged him on and that created
8: that commitment in Marston's part. Those women were his wife, Elizabeth Holloway, and his student-turned-mistress, Olive Byrne. They all lived together and raised four children under one roof. That was kept
11: secret by the family for good reason, because they had a sort of scandalous family life.
8: And get this, the aunt of Marston's mistress was Margaret Sanger. You know, the famed feminist, birth control pioneer, and Planned Parenthood founder. What's more, Marston was also influenced by the suffragist movement he witnessed as a Harvard student in the early 1900s. American suffragists chained themselves
11: to the gates outside the White House. And Marston was really inspired by this. And his By seeing these women
7: in chains. By
8: seeing these women and by hearing these stories. No doubt that's why we see Wonder Woman breaking out of chains in so many of Marston's early comics
11: he says she's got to be chained up because she's an allegory for the emancipation of women and so she has to be chained up so that she can break free break herself free no one ever rescues her she rescues herself
8: and that golden lasso that magically forces villains to break down and tell the truth you cannot lie who are you
10: i'm dr heinrich von klemper
8: and you made the clone of adolf hitler yes no lie psychologist Marston was one of the early pioneers of lie detection. And when we mm-hmm. first meet Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. she's got a, a fairly long skirt on.
1: Actually, it's not a skirt.
8: As archivist like for right. DC Comics, Benjamin LeClear takes like even Wonder Woman's wardrobe it's seriously.
1: It's actually culottes. Uh, there was a big debate about this. Gosh, um, so not heroic. <laughs> well, no, no, it's actually heroic. It was uh, Elizabeth Holloway Marston, Mrs. Marston said... She can't have a skirt. If she's if she's a female superhero, uh, a skirt's going to end up over her head.
8: That's true. Whatever she was wearing, she was selling 2.5 million comics a month. But after Marston's death in 1947, other writers, all male, took over. And Wonder Woman became a little less wonderful. The way that Wonder Woman has changed mm-hmm. demonstrates what our culture was thinking women should be in each kind of era?
1: It's what I love about comic books and uh, really all art forms. They're mirrors on where we were in society.
8: It wasn't until 1972 when women's rights activist and Wonder Woman fan Gloria Steinem put her on the inaugural issue of Ms. Magazine that Wonder Woman got her star-spangled groove back.
7: It is our sacred duty to defend the world and it's what I'm going to do.
8: And coming this summer... Wonder Woman gets her own big budget movie. Proof that after 75 years of heroics, Wonder Woman's real superpower is the power to inspire.
0: There is something about the character where in your creative mind for that time in your life, where you pretended to be her, or whatever the situation was, that it felt like you could fly. Dial M. It's ringing. For Mo.
16: Hey! hey. Just ahead. <laughs> you'll never guess where I'm calling from.
15: It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley.
0: Those tumbling boxes in the 1980 film Airplane are wooden telephone booths like this shinier 1950s-era model with its rotary phone. For some of our younger viewers, a phone booth might as well be a monolith from another world. With Morocco, we remember the good old days.
16: What is this made of? Some of you may recognize this coin-operated curiosity. It's ringing. Hey, hey, how are you? It's Mo. It's called a phone booth. Phone booths used to be everywhere. Providing an office for Agent Maxwell Smart. and a sanctuary for tippy-hedron from killer seagulls in The Birds. Now, they're so rare that Peter Ackerman wrote a children's book about this one, one of only four remaining outdoor phone booths in all of Manhattan. I walked past
6: this phone booth every day with my kid when he was three years old, and at a certain point he said to me, why is that phone in a box? And I realized that he didn't know what a phone booth he didn't was, know it was, which is so bizarre.
16: Are you coming to use the phone booth?
8: He, he is. They want Are you to. serious? Yes.
16: For kids, the phone booth has become something of a novelty. Kids today hanging on the phone all day long. All day long, can't get them off. Hi. But grownups? It's a phone booth. Can't be bothered. No. No, you can call anyone. But it sounds better if you use the payphone. Would you like to use one? No. Could you make a call? You can call anyone with it. The first public coin-operated payphone appeared in Hartford, Connecticut in 1889. The first phone booth debuted in the early 1900s. The 1970s brought those semi-enclosed pedestal-style payphones, which most of us, Superman included, found lacking. By the 1990s, there were nearly 3 million payphones in America, but now, just a small fraction remain. Hello? Hi, is this Mark Thomas?
12: Oh, this is Mark, yes.
16: Mark, I think this is probably easier if we just do this face-to-face. Oh, okay. oh look at that. Hey, I'm we were just talking yeah, on the phone. Yeah, how about that? Mark Thomas created the Payphone Project, an online database that keeps track of the remaining payphones around the world. What did the payphone do to deserve this? Well, the payphone didn't do
12: anything. The, the, the cell phone came along.
16: That's right, our phones got smart. So smart, they began putting payphones out of business. Do you see the cell phone as sort of an arriviste, as, as someone that sort of came along and stole the thunder of the payphone? It stole its relevance.
12: And it, it made communication so simple and so trivial even that This became a laborious way to make a phone call.
16: In New York, and maybe coming soon to a city near you, pay phones are being replaced by these kiosks, offering phone calls, free Wi-Fi, internet service, and a port to charge your cell phone. Aren't people on their cell phones enough? Jen Hensley is with the company installing them.
11: Well, people are on their phones all the time, and this allows them a free way to offload their data plans for people who don't have access to uh, mobile plans or or data. Um, We're offering that for free, so we think it's a really important public service.
16: I approached this sleek and shiny upstart gingerly and called the only person whose number I actually still remember, my mother. I'm calling you from a special free... Phone on the street. You're on on TV right now. Oh, which <laughs> are CBS, ma, the show that I'm on, CBS Sunday Morning.
15: Okay, okay. I'm
16: going to, I'm going to look. No, 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 You're, you know, you're not on live right now. Sorry. No, you're. Are you still there? <laughs> My mother hung up on me, but I can't blame the kiosk for that. Yet, even with all these bells and whistles. My heart belonged to the old-timey phone booth.
11: <laughs> I'll make a call. I knew you would. <laughs> I
16: knew you'd come around. Reach
3: you out. You can call out anyone. Reach someone. Adam? Reach yes, there's out, nothing
16: like reaching reach out or calling from a phone booth. And touching someone. Hello, good morning. From a phone booth. Hey, look. Oh, and it turns out, Manhattan's four oh, remaining Adam. outdoor phone booths are free oh, of charge. Now everyone will want to use the payphone. <laughs> So, yes, we got our quarters back.
15: Meeting someone who actually cares and, lis- and listens to what you have to say really makes a difference. Next. What's the name? It takes
0: two. We'll get to know each other better. Steve Hartman now, who introduces us to some kids who are starved for company.
10: When the lunch bell rings at Boca High in Boca Raton, Florida, 3,400 kids spill into the courtyard and split into their social groups. But not everyone gets included. Here at Boca High and at schools across the country, someone always sits alone.
14: It's not a good feeling. Like, you're by yourself. And that's something I I don't want anybody to go through.
10: Dennis Estimon is a Haitian immigrant. When he came here in first grade, he says he felt isolated especially at lunch. Now he's a senior, he's popular, but he has not forgotten that first grade feeling.
14: To me, it's like if we don't try and go make that change, who's going to do it?
10: So with some friends, Dennis started a club called We Dine Together. We dine.
5: Together.
10: We dine. Together. We dine. Together. Their mission is to go into the courtyard at lunchtime to make sure no one is starving for company. Dennis. I, I'm new here. you. are new here? When did you first come here? For new kids especially, the club is a godsend.
14: This is Gabriel. Gabe, how you
10: doing? Since it started last He's fall, He's Brazilian. Hundreds of friendships have formed, some very unlikely. You're probably meeting kids you never would meet on the football team. Ever. <laughs> Gene Max Meridoux actually never. quit the it's, football it's team, terrible. gave up all the perks that come with it, <laughs> yeah. just so he could spend more time with this club.
13: I don't, I don't mind not getting a football scholarship. This is what I really want to do.
10: Just imagine how different your teenage years would have been What's name? if the coolest kids in school all of a sudden decided you mattered. We get to know each other better. It obviously takes a lot of empathy to devote your lunch period to this. Yes. Either that or firsthand experience.
11: I went from coming from a school that I always had friends to coming to where I had nobody. So.
10: Club member Allie Seeley transferred two years ago. She says with no one to sit next to, lunch can be the most excruciating part of the day.
15: I it's really unfair. It's honestly an issue. Meeting someone who actually cares and, lis- and listens to what you have to say really makes a difference. And that could happen at lunch. That could happen at our club. It's going to make a difference.
10: And not just here at Boca High. Yeah, I'll be around tomorrow if you want to eat lunch together or something. Dennis and his team are now trying to open chapters of We Dine Together at schools across the country. And maybe when they're done showing kids how to make outsiders feel accepted, they can teach us adults, too.
0: Still to come, a nosh with Danny DeVito. Do
5: you like muscle soup? Let's get two muscle soups. That sounds good.
0: Mm, hungry. And later, I'll look back.
12: We'll miss you. Well, I'll miss them
0: with Vern Lundquist
8: Welcome to Play It a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech entertainment and more Play It at play.it
0: Danny DeVito is small in stature but enjoys a very large and loyal following a following that appears almost instantly wherever he goes Our Sunday profile is from Martha Teichner Let's go
5: Let's get out New York City, baby. Let's go this way.
4: Here's just a hint of how famous and loved Danny DeVito is worldwide. Where are you from?
5: Scotland. Scotland? Scotland? Yeah. Hey, (laughs) very
15: nice. I'm from London. Oh, you're
5: from London. Okay, I'm from Jersey. We're going to go through the tundra. Yeah, it
15: is. Okay.
5: This was my guy. This was my pal. So I'd sit here... You know, hot summer nights, people
4: Leading me on a tour of the New York City of his acting school days here fifty years ago led to a polite feeding frenzy. You got it?
5: Yeah. Israel, okay, that's over that way, right? It's like I don't uh, come out a lot, but it doesn't bother me. Hey, nice to see you all, okay, let's do it. I'll go throw myself into Times Square. It's like it's like a chicken with a bunch of piranha. You know, they got to eat it up. You know, I'm like a little dumpling. (laughs) Looking for Mr. Louis De Palma?
4: That's me. Louis De Palma in Taxi was the breakthrough TV role that made him a star in 1978.
5: You're a lily-livid, yellow-bellied, namby-pamby,
3: (laughs) mealy-mouthed chicken.
4: (laughs) But since then... There have been so many others.
5: Hush, hush, off the record and on the QT. You want my watch? Scene-stealers, take, all. Take it, go on. It's a Rolex. No
4: matter how sleazy.
5: Not only are we kidnappers, but I'm about to have a close encounter with a cattle prod.
4: How villainous, even. Ah! DeVito somehow manages to make them irresistible and funny.
6: My name is Julius, and I'm your twin brother.
5: Oh, obviously. How would you describe
4: your sense of humor?
5: Ah, it's unique. I like a good banana peel. I like all that. I was raised on the Marx Brothers and the, you know, the Three Stooges, So, which is a little cruel. It's, it's kind of like, in a, in a way, dark.
4: Just on the face of it, we're not necessarily someone you would predict. No. would become an actor right. and an A-list star and a director right. and a producer. You don't
5: know, you don't know. Yeah, I never ever thought of that. I went to the movies religiously uh, every weekend. It's an escape from life. And you can imagine, you know, I always wanted to be that guy up there. Everybody thinks that when they go to the movies.
4: From Asbury Park, New Jersey, DeVito was younger by more than a decade than both his sisters. He grew up, adored and protected.
5: The thing about being in Jersey and being and growing up with, you know, Louis Scalpati and Sal Baradesco and Nicky Addio and Those guys like that—anybody's going to bully you. They're in trouble. Nobody's going to bully you because you got your posse. And you had your posse? I had my posse big time. And emotionally, my posse was my family, my mother, my father, my sisters. After high school, he worked in his sister Angie's beauty salon,
4: yes, doing hair. Angie sent him to learn makeup, which is how he ended up at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City.
5: There it is. It says American Academy of right. That building right there is where I went to school.
4: DeVito discovered he liked performing. Being short never
5: got in his way. I never did not go for an audition because I didn't think I looked like the person. I think of all the characters that I've ever played, they're always about five feet tall. One of his favorites was the penguin in
4: Batman Returns. Batman! I think you should have gotten an Oscar oh, for that. For the penguin. Well, man. I had
5: maybe to sit in the makeup trail for three hours. I might have gotten. Uh, Sometimes I had to wear flippers.
4: How do you eat way? lunch with <laughs> well, flippers
5: on? Well, it's, it's eating lunch is easy. Somebody can feed you. But there are other <laughs> things that you have to do with your hands.
4: <laughs> do you have a sense of what is a Danny DeVito character
5: that you're drawn to? Well, like what I'm doing now, Solomon is like a great part. Years ago, a man was unhappy, didn't know what to do with himself he go to church, start the revolution, something. It's a character part it's a 90-year-old Yiddish man. It's a little different. There's a lot of layers laid, laid on this character that are unique for me. At 72, Danny DeVito is making his Broadway debut
4: in Arthur Miller's The Price.
5: I shouldn't have come. <laughs> no, this is too much for me. I thought there would be a few pieces. This is way too much for me.
4: Circling back to the stage where he began. If you've been at it eight shows a week and it's exhausting,
5: does that feed you? Tonight we do one. No, no, it's just like good. You want more. I would do more. I think it's like a good idea to do like 10, 12 shows a week.
10: You're terrific. I
4: got it. Co-star Mark Ruffalo, a fan and now a friend, was in awe.
5: Um, I just got to show you a script. It's like a curled, I mean... And I go right in here. Oh,
4: this is right off the stage. Wow.
5: <laughs> Come and sit down nice right run. there. Sit down right there. This is my script.
4: What kind of stuff do you write on the margins?
5: Well, there's all kinds of stuff about how, where to go, where you want to try stuff, and the script, you know, what you want to try. How do I know if I'm in the album?
4: How did an Italian get into the mindset of a geriatric Jew? Danny DeVito headed for Barney Greengrass. Hey, Gary. His favorite New York deli.
5: Like, used to come a couple times a week just to, like, you know, sit in, listen to people. You know, it's it's good. And you got uh, ideas for Solomon? It's good to, like, try to daydream your way into it. And, of course... How about some nice potato latas? Want to try those? Sure, why not? A good excuse to eat. Just like Grandma Gertie used to make. Rhea's grandmother was the best. That's
4: DeVito's wife and sometime co-star, the very funny four-time Emmy winner, Rhea Perlman.
5: I mean, I know you say you didn't, but obviously you did. I did not glue my hat to my head. The hat shrunk, the fibers fused to my hair. Ow, ow, Ah. Ah.
4: (sighs) Together since 1971, they have three grown children and were, until recently, considered one of the most stable couples in Hollywood. Everybody says, oh, our... Danny and Rhea Perlman still together, and I read that you're getting a divorce, and so... Well, we're, not, what,
5: we're not getting a divorce, but we, we separated, yeah.
4: She was here for the
5: opening. Oh, absolutely, we're really close. So how do you... Well, we've been friends for 40-something years. So where does, I mean, for people who love both of you... We love each other.
4: At this stage in his life and career, what Danny DeVito doesn't want to do is slow down, or play it safe. Where's the ropes? No clearer evidence of that is his role as Frank Reynolds
5: in the bizarre black comedy, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. These guys put me in, like, situations themselves, too. It's like, it's like I Love Lucy on acid. It's, like, really (laughs) far out. Example? His
4: infamous couch scene. Sew me into the couch! Which went viral on
7: YouTube.
5: (laughs) It's like a big halibut being... Birth through (laughs) like just coming out (laughs) naked, like greasy from sweat. It was just amazing. (laughs) Can't breathe. Ah! I had to do it several times. It was really several times. Yeah. Mm. Came out. Kept greasing myself up more so I could come out (laughs) faster. I've been slimed. I've fallen out of windows. I've had like you know I've amnesia. God, it's funny. And uh, it's my trampoline. You want to get on it? Get on it and try it.
4: So, the novel way Danny DeVito warms up in his dressing room before every performance shouldn't surprise
5: you. In costume. You have a lot of energy. I do have a lot of energy.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Ahead, get to know the work of John McLaughlin. Now showing at a major museum, paintings by the influential 20th century artist, John McLaughlin. Say you're not familiar with his work? Neither was our Ben Tracy.
9: In the world of abstract expressionism, there are certain names that come to mind. Pollock, Rothko, de Kooning. But what about McLaughlin? All right, so let's start with a bit of honesty. When they told me we were doing a story on John McLaughlin, I said, John who? Why is this art worthy of this exhibit?
15: There's a resurgence of interest in going back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and finding those artists who may not have been the ones who were the bold-faced names the first time around. But these are artists who perhaps more quietly and perhaps with less economic success continued to create a really powerful body of work.
9: I mean, it does feel very peaceful in here.
15: It does, doesn't it? I mean,
9: Stephanie Barron is curator of an exhibit at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, featuring the work of post-war artist John McLaughlin.
15: It just causes a kind of meditative quality that invites you to slow down
9: he was relatively unknown partially because he lived in southern California not New York City the epicenter of modern art in the mid-20th century he was also a bit of a late bloomer
15: I mean he doesn't start painting until he's 48 he bought his canvases at Sears he used house paint He didn't go to art school. He didn't apprentice with other artists. I mean, these were all traditional ways that artists became artists.
9: McLaughlin was born in 1898 outside of Boston. He adopted his mother's fondness for Japanese art and would spend several years abroad in Asia, collecting art and learning Japanese and Mandarin. He later served there as an army translator during World War II. McLaughlin's artistic choices were inspired by the Japanese idea ma, meaning the void or space between, a unique approach at the time. And so when you look at this, what is the Japanese influence that you see here? Well, I think he's giving equal weight
15: to the spaces in between. And there's not so much of a foreground and a background, but the background becomes the foreground.
17: I would stack him up against any American artist of the 20th century. He breaks every rule you can think of in terms of good, acceptable composition for a painting. He splits his paintings in half.
9: Who does that? Christopher Knight is chief art critic at the Los Angeles Times. And
17: in the 50s in New York, uh, coming after World War II, the void was a very different concept for Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. The void was a place of terror. The world had almost collapsed after Holocaust and the hydrogen bomb. That's, in some respects, almost the opposite of what McLaughlin was doing. The void as a place in which consciousness and perception uh, can emerge. Mm-hmm.
9: McLaughlin died in 1976, just as his reputation was building. He had no children, so his paintings were eventually sold off. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art exhibit is set to close next month. But Knight hopes it fills the void of appreciation he feels the artist truly deserves.
17: When you have an artist of McLaughlin's brilliance, it behooves you to pay attention to him if you have any interest in art whatsoever. And here is this largely unknown jewel in a fantastic exhibition, sort of perfectly organized, waiting for you to go see it. Why not?
0: Coming up, Vern Lundquist. Yes, sir! One of a kind.
12: The challenge is to not embellish the moment, to not overwhelm it.
0: Vern Lundquist has been calling the shots for all kinds of sports here at CBS longer than most of us can remember. And doing it better, Jim Axelrod reminds us, than just about anyone.
12: Hi, once again, everybody, Vern Lundquist. If you can't
13: place the voice...
0: By George, the dream is alive!
13: Chances are you haven't paid much attention to sports. There's the pass to Leitner. Not just this year. Puts it up. But for the past half century...
12: Davis goes left! Davis gets a block! No flags!
13: Vern Lundquist has made some of sport's most memorable calls.
5: An answered
1: prayer!
12: The challenge is to be appropriate to the moment. To not embellish the moment, to not overwhelm it.
13: An old-school craftsman whose voice is pure baritone on the next bar stool. Maybe. Yes, sir! You go four, five, six deep of calls that anybody would cut their left arm off to have presented to them as a sportscaster. I get that. How do you make sense of that?
12: I don't. I just say, thank (laughs) heaven.
13: In a couple of hours, he'll call another NCAA tournament game. And in a couple of weeks, here, 16. he'll be at his familiar perch on the 16th hole at the Masters. Hi, right, once again, everybody. Vern at 76, Vern Lundquist isn't quite at the finish line of his career, but he can see it pretty clearly. Last December, he wrapped up 17 years as the play-by-play man for college football's powerhouse Southeastern Conference. Serenaded and saluted by college football fans for months, who made plain how they feel about the charming, folksy companion they call Uncle Vern. How do you articulate what that even feels like?
12: Well, I had to swallow hard and pinch my inner thigh to keep from crying. But if you
13: think giving up millions of people paying tribute to you is tough to do, you don't know Vern Lundquist.
12: He made his living from sports. Mr. Prester was the only pianist the Beaux-Arts Trio ever had.
13: But not his life. 53 years.
12: What does music give you? A soul,
13: a depth. I mean, it touches some part of you very deeply, very deeply. That soul is touched most deeply here in the snowy Colorado Rockies. Built this magnificent structure. Where for years, Vern and his wife, Nancy, have been highly instrumental in the Strings Music Festival, which Sunday morning first visited back in 1992. Beautiful scenes and beautiful scenery inspires you. You're creating beauty, and there is beauty. Lundquist often lends his famous pipes as a master of ceremonies to something that may mean even more to him than a
12: game. I'm used to talking about Alabama and Auburn, (laughs) and we've got 20 million people watching. It doesn't faze me. But But when you got 550... Oh, my God. And I walk out this door over here, and it's a hard swallow, and you think, dear Lord, get me through this.
13: These days, Vern Lundquist is looking back with gratitude. So everybody wrote a little something. The people you worked with, your colleagues, they loved you,
12: too. Mm. Yeah, it was palpable. We'll miss you. Well, I'll miss them. Still... The lesson to be drawn
13: from his life is that he's also looking forward. That's what happens when you have someone like Nancy right along with you. Hi, Neil. She's traveled the world by his
12: side in the booth for years. On our first date, we discovered that we had this mutual love of symphonic and classical music. And that was the first glue that we found to hold us together.
13: You're bound not by football.
12: No. You're bound by music? And especially here.
13: Here is the city
12: of Steamboat Springs. This is, at its heart, a ski resort attached to a ranching community. What's the draw? The people,
4: the people that live here, and the uh, friendships that we've accumulated over
13: the years. It's been their home for the last 33 years, and it's a place where Vern Lundquist can walk the streets during the winter carnival as both a next-door neighbor and a local hero. Is it still some satisfaction to know that as you walk down the street, the people seeing you go by go, that's fair?
12: Yeah, sure. Of course, yeah. Of course it is. It's a reaffirmation of the fact that Nancy and I are welcomed. I'm going to (laughs) get This is home. This is home.
13: Yes, Vern Lundquist has it all: a sense of place, Ingenious. passion, I wouldn't and, know about that, and <laughs> partnership. Not to mention some of the most memorable play-by-play calls in the history of sports. This is the ball of Tiger Woods. As the man himself might say, better to be lucky than good. But best to be
12: both. Oh, my goodness. I'm just so unbelievably appreciative of the way my career and my life has wound up. Oh, wow! In your life have you seen anything like
0: that? I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.